Welcome to the FX Big Picture podcast. This is a series of podcasts where we will discuss a wide variety of topics and provide a rather different perspective from our experiences serving UK customers at NatWest. Welcome to the latest edition of the FX Big Picture podcast. My name is Duncan McCabe. I'm on the NatWest Markets uh, Corporate Foreign Exchange Sales Team. Today, joined once again by our FX Markets strategist, Neil Parker. Hi there, Neil. Good afternoon. And uh, also joined by uh, my colleague, Dominic Conway, also on the UK Corporate Foreign Exchange Sales Team. Afternoon, all. Thanks for uh, letting me join again. Great stuff. So um, we are today going to be talking about monetary policy um, and specifically uh, in the inflationary environment that we find ourselves in. Uh, have we learned from past cycles? Uh, will we repeat or will central bankers repeat the same um, responses? And is globalization a help or a hindrance in this mix? So, uh, Neil, we have uh, seen so globally in, in developed economies inflation uh, at elevated levels um, rather than what we've seen in, in recent years. I think you'll say it's largely from uh, large fiscal packages um, from the COVID pandemic and supply chain disruption. So previous uh, cycles, inflationary cycles, what were the main central bank responses to this and, and what were the outcomes? Well, I think to set it in context, first and foremost, most of the crises that we've seen previously um, have been in response to to initially uh, overstimulus of demand and then having to rein it back. So a lot of the inflation that we've seen in past cycles has actually been caused by excessive demand. And and so the, the obvious response is, well, you, you react by raising interest rates. And when you raise interest rates, you slow things down. You're trying to engineer, as a central bank, you're always trying to engineer a soft landing. Um, but you're engineering a soft landing from a period of excess. And, and so the danger is always that you're going to overdo it. And, and quite often, you get into a crisis because the central bank completely um, not, not their fault. They're, they're doing their best, but the central bank will overdo things because they're trying to react to something that they're targeting in the future, but with data that they're observing now and, and, and obviously forecasts in between. So the central bank's response is usually, right, we've, we've got the crisis. We've now gone from too much demand to not enough demand. Let's reduce interest rates. Let's, let, let, let's try and get demand back to at least where it was prior to the, um, uh, the, the crisis beginning. That's fine when you're, you're absolutely certain about what's causing the crisis and what's causing the need for um, monetary policy or fiscal policy intervention. The other point I'd, I'd quickly stress as well is, is for quite a long period over the course of the 1990s and 2000s, we went from a period of in the 1970s and 80s where there was greater direct fiscal action taken and a lot, a lot bigger fiscal intervention, both 
positive and negative, to a point where a lot of the fiscal activity was much smaller in size. So the central bank action could be taken almost uh, um, uh, in uh, in the context of it was it was independent of what was happening in the in fiscal policy because fiscal policy wasn't really having much of an impact. This time around, well, this latest crisis, the pandemic, what we've seen is both fiscal and monetary policy really being used aggressively to try and uh, and intervene to get the uh, economies to recover far more quickly. And, and so what did we learn from the crises of old to these crises? It actually does take quite a long time normally to get economies to recover because it takes a long time for confidence to be rebuilt. It takes a long time for supply chains to, 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 to recover. And, and it's that supply chain point that I think has been missed in, in, in the, the rush to try and get everything back up and running. We've forgotten the supply chain doesn't spin up necessarily as quickly as demand will. Um, and so where we've maybe um, started to, uh, to miss the point as far as what uh, the actions of both fiscal and monetary policy are there to do is that, they're, yes, they're there to stimulate Yes, they're there to to bring things back into balance or order, um, but you have to be able to allow the supply chain to recover, and they haven't allowed the supply chain to recover. And as a consequence, you've created the thing that you, as a central bank, say you don't want to, which is inflation. So the central banks this time around, rather than in previous crises, have been responsible for a lot of the inflation that they say they're fighting against. So you think that this this time is very different in the construct to the global financial crisis um, of sort of 07 onwards. Um, we're going through a, a hiking cycle both in the US and the UK in sort of through sort of 05 to early 07 in, in the case of the UK. Yeah, is, is this does this have any any echoes in in terms of the hiking cycle, or is are they going to are central banks increasingly wary of going too hard too soon in in terms of rate rises? I think you I think you bring up a good point actually in terms of the the hiking cycle probably started too late. The last time, so in the run-up to the financial crisis, it started too late. Things had been allowed to run too hot for too long. <clears throat> for example, in both the UK and the US, the housing markets were showing signs of distress as far as really excessive house price rises. Um, and yet the, the central banks were reluctant to, to pull the trigger on it because they, they, they felt that inflation up until sort of uh, the, the, the early stages of 2005 was, if anything, too low. The recovery from the 2000.com um, crash and then 2001, September the 11th, and all of the events around that, the, the, the culmination and the combination of those things had suppressed prices for, for a long period of time. 
Uh, and so the, the, the natural reaction of the central bank was to, to do nothing for, for perhaps too long. So they, they allowed demand to, to become um, excessive. And then the, 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 the reaction was when they did start to pull the trigger on rate rises, they did it too, too often and by um, too significant an overall amount without waiting to see whether or not it had uh, a real impact they were so they weren't measure they were they were trying to measure what the future impact would be but based on again data that they were receiving in real time or 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 historic data um and and that was an identifying mix for both the uk and the us central banks because they missed the signals coming out of things like the mortgage market coming out of uh, of other areas of the economy that said there is a distressed state for both businesses and individuals here um so um, uh, but one of the lessons that they, they they actually didn't miss is that we saw this really big, huge surge in inflation into 2008, um, and they didn't compound the problem that they already had with regard to excessive levels of uh, of monetary policy by then pulling the trigger with further interest rate hikes. They, they, they held off from that and, in fact, started to reduce interest rates. Um, and, and that lesson seemed to have been learned again in 2011-12, because in 2011-12, we also got a similarly sizable rise in headline inflation rates. But there was never any question that they were going to tighten monetary policy. There was, there was no way that they were going to be hiking rates, given the scale and size of the economic downturn that had been seen. So they held back from that, recognizing that the economic impact would have been disproportionately adverse on the average consumer, the average household, if they were to then compound um, the, the, the effects of the financial crisis with the renewed round of interest rate tightening. So, yes, the 2008 financial crisis, too late and too quick. Um, uh, and didn't recognise that there were already signs of distress there. Didn't wait to see whether or not the interest rate rises were having an impact, which they were. So, Neil, what's the alternative then? If you're saying that we've acted too late, or the central banks have acted too late this time, what's the alternative? Do we do we go with the ECB's approach, which is to not raise rates and and wait and see how things play out? I mean. They've got to do something. You're talking about in the UK at the moment. This is the biggest impact on the cost of living since the 1970s. Yep. And, and, and here is the problem for them. Because neither option is particularly appetising. It's a Hobson's choice. It's let it rip. Let inflation take hold. See where it takes us to. Um, but recognise that the supply chain is responsible for a lar- the large majority of the inflation, or intervene and potentially bring about an earlier economic downturn, having only just recovered from the last one. The last one obviously being pandemic-driven, so it wasn't necessarily a, uh, the, the cu- culmination of excessive demand. But you, you, you don't have any easy choices for central banks. And... Uh, and, and this is what is a situation that's being wrestled with 
at the Bank of England, at the Federal Reserve and at the ECB. You've mentioned them as well. You know, but what the European Central Bank's approach has been is we may need to adjust monetary policy, but we're adjusting monetary policy as and when we understand the extent to which this supply side led issue is feeding through into the demand behaviours of both businesses and individuals. And I don't believe that there is enough discussion of that within other central banks. You know, the other central banks, and we've seen it in Eastern Europe, we've seen it in Latin America, we've seen it in parts of, of Asia as well. The response has been, inflation is bad, let's raise interest rates. Not what's causing the inflation and what damage will raising interest rates do. So I'm not saying that I'm here sitting here with the solution to all of this, but I am saying that I think more needs to be done to identify uh, how to tackle the problem. And the problem, from, to my mind, is that globalization rather than strengthening supply chains has weakened them to the point at which people's responses now are not... Uh, that looks expensive. I'll wait until it goes down in, in, in price. It's that looks expensive. I'll buy twice as much as I actually need because I'm worried it's going to keep going up. Um, and I might not be able to get hold of it as well. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. We've um, pivoted nicely onto the globalization uh, aspect of, of the discussion. Um, you know, you would say that in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, product or globalization has allowed for a lower cost of production and lower cost therefore of the prices of of goods in in the mix uh, that we enjoy and at this moment in time where not only has there been enormous global supply chain disruption prior to uh, the war in ukraine but this looks following the this event it looks like this is here to be around uh, sadly for a for a good while yet and um when we look at globalization point that we're in in my mind it doesn't seem like there's much room to either expand or expand or have significant technology or transport improvements uh, in the short space of time to alleviate this um it to find new territories and, and newer, lower cost uh, areas to be able to um, to produce, it, it, it seems like that it's only going to go, well, back, unwind globalization rather than uh, actually increase this. I don't know. Well, what, do you, what do you think about this? I think uh, you're right there, Neil. So, so uh, sorry, sorry, Duncan. I, I think having spoken to clients, they, they are dealing with multiple pressures at the moment. You've got freight around $25,000 a container. You've got energy bills going up. One client I spoke to 600% year on year from January in 2021. They're, they're having to have these multiple battles and, and cost pressures. Um, and as a result, clients are thinking, is it still cost effective to import that product from the Far East or is it better to maybe look at a little closer to home and maybe manufacture in the UK or in Eurozone? Um, and, as, and, and, and to your right, I suppose, not have that globalization piece, but more of an isolationist um, sort of um, a, approach. But these are, these are the pressures we're facing. And, you know, it's, it's all well and good blaming the supply chain for this inflation, but 
I actually think governments have got a lot to answer for in, in this lack of foresight. You know, the energy crisis has been on the horizon for a long, long time. And the lack of investment in infrastructure and alternative energy is just as much to blame for this inflation crisis, in my view, as is supply chain um, and issues, etc. Yeah, I mean, let's sort of unpack it and and, and try and try and look at, at some of the, 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 the key things here that might drive deglobalization. Dom's mentioned one. Can I produce this? Am I able to sort of take this in-house? Um, it's going to be more expensive than it was when I was importing the item. But um, now that the, the, the item is costing so much to ship um, uh, and everything else, is it is it easier for me to uh, to, to do this in house? And, and we've certainly seen a lot of clients that are investigating that side of things because they've recognised that if there is a supply chain weakness, then it's better for them to be in control of, or, or better in control of the raw material um, to then uh, use it in its production process rather than uh, trying to uh, compete with several dozen if not more than that uh different firms who are all using a similar or the same supplier secondly like the the, the whole issue around shipping um comes from several factors but number one is, is that there is an inequity between the flow of goods that's going from the west to the east and vice versa there's too much coming from east to west and not enough going from west to east that's not going to change. I mean, like you're talking multiple decades to, to actually make a dent in that. Um, and even if you do, by the way, bring a lot of production back in-house, you're still going to be importing the raw materials. And the question is, therefore, where are you importing them from? Are they coming from the areas that you're importing the finished product from? So are you actually saving the money? Um, or are you importing it from, from other territories, other uh, geographical locations, continents, uh, however you want to describe them. Let's also unpack the thing around sort of energy. I mean, like the energy problem has been that, that there has been a prolonged uh, discussion about how we move away from hydrocarbon-based energy. Has there been enough investment in the alternatives in order to provide a degree of redundancy in case the new uh, green and renewable sources weren't able to, to fill the gap. Now, that's a debate for another day. But certainly, I think, you know, I can think back to 15, 20 years ago and the dash for gas um, and building a lot of gas-fired um, electricity uh, power generating stations because it was cheap. You know, that's not necessarily the investment that you're, 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 you're looking for, for, for for long-term planning. You know, the, the length of time it's taken to get a new nuclear station um, signed off, um, and, and it, that's still in the process of being built in the UK. <laughs> Meanwhile, over in France, they're building 14 new nuclear power plants. Um, and, and so there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot to discuss about investment in energy, but let's be crystal clear here the single largest problem still stems back to too much demand for the current level of supply that we have um, and that would have been regardless of 
energy investment, regardless of which energy sources that we'd chosen um, or, or anything else, you'd st- you'd still have this problem. You've still got this problem, by the way, in countries that have invested far more heavily in energy. The only reason that their inflation rates are not showing the same signs of stress as the likes of the UK or the US is, is perhaps they're subsidising their energy industry more through government expenditure. Now, that's no long-term solution either. So we can shy away from from, from the issue, but globalization was, for a lot of businesses, a good thing. You know, it was almost a new silk road for for, for a lot of businesses. Um, And there were a huge amount of investment opportunities. But fundamentally, what globalization um, can be blamed for is that people chose uh, single supply routes. There was no longer redundancy in supply routes like we've had in in, in previous decades, in in previous cycles. And it's perhaps reintroducing, and it goes back to one of the podcasts we did many, many sessions ago, Duncan, about reintroducing that redundancy and having multiple potential uh, suppliers for things, um, rather than looking at this and saying, well, you know, how do we solve this problem and then move on to the next one? Because I'm not sure that by solving this problem and moving on, you're producing a long-term plan. You're just solving a short-term problem. And the longer-term plan is, what can we do better? What can we do more efficiently? Um, But equally, what can we do to fix a a problem that we ourselves, um, within the global uh, capitalism system, have created by just trying to go to cheapest to deliver? Um, And I think... Going back to, to, to the, the, the question, is globalization a help or a hindrance? I don't think it's globalization per se that's the problem here. It's our response to being presented with a cheap and um, purportedly plentiful supply of stuff um, has been to effectively exhaust it, like a miner that, that, that finds a rich seam of gold, um, like rather than thinking about Where's where's my my plan for ten years? Just trying to get that gold out as quickly as possible, and sell it as quickly as possible. Um, and and I think that's what the Western economies have done. So we haven't um, uh, been kind to ourselves. We haven't been kind to our own economies because we've encouraged that excessive demand. So Neil, we. We've covered a very, very complex structural topic. We've got a very near-term problem of very much, uh, yeah, rising rising inflation uh, that central banks want to deal with immediately. Um, however, there is substantial structural supply chain considerations and, and potential con- contingency plans for the medium term to, to longer term that um, certainly do not change overnight. They, they, will, they will take some time to readjust, recalibrate if they do at all. And so with that, with that complicated equation, how would you go about managing the short term in, in a monetary policy sense? In a, in a monetary policy sense, I think there's a. I think there's a simple choice to be made for central banks. 
Um, are we prepared to put our economies into a recession in order to try and try and manage this inflation? I think that choice eventually will be no. Um, but what 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 central banks then need to uh, be able to to sort of openly uh, debate with uh, with the general public, with the fiscal authorities, and everything, is then what 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 is the medium term solution to all of this? What's the medium term plan to um, to to tackle supply side led problems like this in the future? Um, and one of those things might have to be um, to, uh, to to be able to dial things down, even when it would appear that everything is plentiful um, and uh, and in good supply, um, simply so that you're you're not going to run out of stuff. There's one other thing which nobody will really want to talk about, but does this mean that central banks have to be better coordinated um, so that we're not having economic cycles running at multiple different times so that the economic cycles are, are, are more, more, more uniform? But go back to that final, that, that, that other point that we, we talked about previously. The inflation this time around has been caused rather than solved by central bank action that going back to the financial crisis they were too late in raising interest rates this time around they've been too aggressive in overstimulating demand because they were letting the uh, quantitative easing action the pandemic emergency programs and and everything on asset purchases they were allowing that to run well uh, into the point where we were already seeing inflation rising. You know, inflation was rising as, as early, or inflation pressures were obvious as early as the first quarter of 2021. They've got to, so, so, so central banks also need to have uh, a better economic radar uh, like, uh, or early warning system to inform them that actually their, their plans need to change much more quickly. There was no need to keep stimulating into uh, the autumn of last year when it was apparent to everybody about the supply chain disruption that was already in situ. And if you've got glo uh, uh, globalization and if you understand globalization, um, then you need to, to recognize that globalization for central banks means uh, effectively, moderation rather than feast or famine is best. Okay, M message moderation, bit of frugality, and um, I think that is what what's guaranteed is that there will be some market volatility. It's not going to be uh, it, even though your very sound prescriptive response, Neil. Um, I think it's still not not an easy problem to solve. Um, but thank you very much. Uh, for your thoughts and comments today Neil same for you Dominic and uh, thank you everyone for listening we look forward to uh, presenting and discussing another topic again very very soon